Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 32, October 25th through October 31st, 1861. First, may I say, happy Halloween, and before you even ask, yes, there was a year I went as a Civil War soldier, and no, that picture Will not be making it to the website. I know you were all probably very disappointed. Last week, we had the Battle of Ball's Bluff, which saw the death of Congressman Baker. We also had action in Kentucky at Camp Wildcat, which saw Felix Zollicoffer's advance toward Lexington turn back. Finally, we also had an engagement at Fredericktown, which was another setback for the Missouri State Guard and also opened that area to federal operation. Let's actually check back in this week and see what is going on in Missouri. October 25th, 1861 would see the first Battle of Springfield. If you recall, Springfield had been occupied by the Confederates shortly after the Battle of Wilson's Creek. After the siege and occupation of Lexington, remember I said this was sort of the high watermark for the Missouri State Guard under Sterling Price. Well, John C. Fremont moved his army, which would number some 20,000 to 30,000 strong, toward the rebels. At this point, Fremont had not been replaced, mind you, that will come in November of 1861, so right around the corner here. Sterling Price would see this as a battle that he could not win, despite perhaps having relatively equal numbers. The State Guard were still lacking in terms of arms and training compared to Fremont's men, so they would begin their withdrawal back toward southwestern Missouri. Fremont would send the commander of his bodyguard, one Charles Sigani, a Hungarian mercenary, toward Springfield as he closed in on the Confederates. Sigani had served in the Hungarian Revolutionary Army before coming to America, so he had participated in the revolutions of 1848. I think it is interesting, he is an example of part of the criticism Fremont received of surrounding himself with mercenaries. And this is considering Zagani follows Fremont throughout his service and will actually resign in 1862 following Fremont's removal of command in Virginia. The Hungarian would lead some 300 mounted troops accompanied by 100 prairie scouts under Frank White toward Springfield. The rebel commander there would attempt to ambush the mounted Union cavalry and see some success when engaging the Federals. Zagani's men, though, were each armed with at least two revolvers and could put up a more impressive rate of fire than the more poorly armed rebels. Three chargers would break the Confederates and see the Union cavalry thunder into Springfield to remove the enemy flag before withdrawing back to safety. Zagani describes the affair in his own words reporting to Fremont. General, 
I respectfully report that yesterday at 4 p.m., I met at Springfield about 2,000 rebels formed in line of battle. They gave me a warm reception, but your guard, with some feeling, made a charge, and in less than three minutes, the enemy was completely routed. We cleared the city of every rebel and retired, it being near night and not being able to keep the place with so small a force. Major White's command did not participate in the charges. I have seen charges, but such brilliant bravery I have never seen and did not expect. Their war cry, Fremont and the Union, broke forth like thunder. Now, were there 2,000 rebels who were all formed up in a line of battle uh, to meet these some 300 mounted men? Uh, probably not. Obviously, that's a good example of some exaggeration there. Did they cry Fremont and the Union as they charge? Maybe. Or maybe Sugiani here is sort of tipping the hat to his employer. That could also be uh, something that is a possibility. And I think it's also interesting that he mentions how the 100 Prairie Scouts under Frank White, uh, according to this little report here, had no part in the action. So obviously taking some, some glory there for himself. So there are several things that we can potentially take away just from this little report. Casualties were some 85 on the side of the Union and a little over 100 on the side of the Confederates for the engagement. It would be one of the bolder cavalry charges of the war. Fremont's army would move into Springfield shortly thereafter as Price continued to limp away to safety. As mentioned, not long after Winfield Scott would replace the Pathfinder. I think it is sort of ironic Fremont finally made it to Springfield when one of his main criticisms was not supporting Lyon when he had been in the area earlier in August. Now speaking of John C. Fremont, we have many times mentioned the Mexican-American War, but we have not really jumped too far into the details. If I say, well, so-and-so served at the Battle of Buena Vista or with John Wool, I would like to have a little more context. Also, I would like to point out some takeaways maybe that our young officers, or at least at the time they were younger officers, uh, might have had besides those already mentioned. I will hold off on talking too much about the Texas War of Independence and save that one for another time. But if you recall what we talked about in our setup episodes way back in the beginning, long story short, Americans moved into Texas because Mexico was okay with having a buffer territory with the United States. We also had immigrants moving into that area, the area that is now Texas. That was also sort of a buffer with uh, Native American tribes who would potentially raid into Mexico. So that was also a plus for the Mexican government. The Texans then declared independence and became their own nation following campaigns against the Mexican president and dictator Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna. Santa Anna was well known for his campaigns against the Spanish, leading to his presidency. After the Texas Revolution, he actually loses a leg fighting against a brief French invasion, oddly enough. The French actually move in because there was some outstanding debt that the Mexicans owed the French, so 
that's actually why we briefly put some boots on the ground in Mexico. He'll be around for the American invasion in the 1840s. U.S. presidents were reluctant to seek statehood for Texas, so for a time it would be its own republic. It would sit so for several years until the presidential election of 1844. I think first we need to talk about James K. Polk. Polk was a disciple of Andrew Jackson. In fact, the Tennessee native was known as Little Hickory, a play on the nickname of Jackson. Polk had been on the outside looking in, a dark horse candidate leading up to his election in 1844. He was running against the compromiser Henry Clay, who was at the time the idol of fellow Whig Abraham Lincoln. John Tyler had become president upon the death of William Henry Harrison. Now, you remember the action aboard the USS Princeton we talked about that may well have been fatal to the president. Well, in a way, it sort of was, because this event is not good for John Tyler, and seals his fate as losing out on the nomination. He would move forward with bringing Texas into the Union as a state before leaving office, though. Expansion was a key topic for people of the day, and Henry Clay was against the further westward movement. Although a slaveholder, the Whig Party was against moves that would see the continuing of slave territory. Texas and any further moves west would mean potentially more additions. John Quincy Adams, at that time the aging party leader, was one of the first major abolitionists. So Polk, running as the Democratic candidate, will go on to win, a relative unknown. In fact, during the election, Whigs would ask, who is James Polk? It's a pretty sick burn there. Don't know if you caught that. Anyway, when Polk wins, territorial expansion will be the name of the game. But Texas, having already been acquired, California became the object of Polk's eye. He also had a sticky situation of Mexico refusing to recognize Texas and refusing to negotiate a purchase of California. Another focus was the Oregon Territory, shared with the British and bringing that area into the fold. There was more of an emphasis on a potential third conflict with Great Britain than there was with Mexico. The USS Princeton and naval innovation had been a move to challenge the might of the British Navy. It would not be from the neighbors to the south that war would come, or at least so James Polk thought. The prevailing thought of Polk was if we give Mexico enough money, then they would surely fold. The president would send John Slidell to Mexico, but he was the wrong guy for the job. Slidell, and Polk it should be said, did not like the Mexicans, whom they viewed as inferior. The mission of the diplomat was doomed on this front, and even more derailed when it was slipped to the Mexican public the purposes of his visit essentially cut the territory of the southern neighbor in half. Faced with pressure from their citizens, Mexico would reject any deal. It should be noted they would probably have not accepted even if this had not happened, but regardless, their hands were tied. 
So now, Polk needed to be able to take the territory if he cannot purchase. He would send Zachary Taylor into disputed territory in an effort to get the Mexicans to start a war. Taylor is an unconventional general. He does not wear a uniform, called Rough and Ready, an apt nickname. Taylor would actually take joy in directing men looking for their general away from his tent, as they figured him for a servant. Now, it should be noted that the Americans recognized the Rio Grande as the boundary, where Mexico marked a line further north. In 1846, Mexican troops, who were defending their homeland in their eyes, would attack a contingent of American troopers. One soldier was killed along the Rio Grande, and 52 prisoners were taken. This gives Polk what he wants. May 14, 1846, would mark an official declaration of war. Polk was already planning on presenting a declaration to Congress, but would edit it after the attack on U.S. troops. Many would see through the charade, it should be noted, including Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln actually denounced the war effort along with other Whigs, as we have mentioned. Still, there would be an initial war fever that many volunteers would catch as they rushed to join the army. We actually need to spend just a little bit of time talking about the makeup of the army. Regular army forces were usually seen in negative light by the public and volunteers. There were these older ideals of fighting for money versus the cause. Thus, regular army forces before the Mexican War were usually poor, including many immigrants. Many Irish immigrants fighting in the army would defect at the urging of Mexican generals, who mentioned how they had more in common with the Catholic Mexicans than they did with the predominantly Protestant U.S. Army officers. Remember that know-nothing party being anti-immigrant, right? The San Patricios would bring their superior knowledge of artillery to the Mexican army and become one of the more effective fighting forces. Taylor would establish Fort Texas, which would come under fire by the Mexican forces in the meantime. The first major battle of the war would actually be fought north of the Rio Grande, near modern-day Brownsville, Texas. Future Mexican President Mariana Arista would face off against Taylor, holding a slight advantage in numbers. During this battle, called Palo Alto, superior armament of the Americans would be on full display. Flying artillery, that is to say artillery more who was more mobile, like horse artillery, was used to great effect at Palo Alto. Taylor actually remarks how the Mexican troops advanced bravely under fire. But the accurate fire would actually send the enemy from the field, having suffered over 200 casualties. After Palo Alto, there would be a battle of Resaca de Palma, fought in dense chaparral, including a cavalry charge from the Americans that overruns their intended target before infantry support would send the Mexican army into a retreat. Thus, they would be pushed back across the Rio Grande, having suffered nearly 500 casualties. 
Mexico would need to come up with a leader to fight against the American invasion. Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna was recalled from exile and named the commander of the Mexican army. Only problem was, there is a U.S. Navy blockade and Santa Anna is in Cuba. This does show the slickness of the old general and former president. Essentially, he plays polled. The government thinks that there will be a negotiation if they allow him to get to Mexico. The Mexican general did not mention this in his own autobiography. Now, this will be extremely embarrassing for Polk's administration, as you can imagine. They gifted Mexico with their most popular general, and probably the man with the best chance to form a real defense of the country. After all, he had already mounted a defense against a foreign invader in the French. Taylor's army suffered from disease while he was waiting for his numbers to be supplemented by volunteers. In Taylor's army, we have many names we have already talked about, including Grant, Jefferson Davis, Dixon Miles, John Abercrombie, Braxton Bragg, and David Twiggs from Georgia. He would soon advance on Monterey and choose to assault the city, which proves costly in September of 1846. American troops would conduct house-to-house fighting in the streets of Monterey and eventually capture key points in the town. Forces under General Pedro de Empedia were still holed up in the city at various places. Taylor would seek and sign an armistice. The U.S. Army is then sapped of strength, many of his veteran troops being shipped to Winfield Scott's army, which would invade farther south. Polk was angry, saying that if Taylor had pressed the advantage, the Mexican army would have been destroyed. In reality, Taylor had no choice, being outnumbered by the Mexican forces and having suffered numerous casualties. Taylor was also now a threat as a presidential candidate to challenge Polk due to his battlefield success, as he was gaining popularity. He was also, uh, it should be said, a free agent, as it were, for a political party, so he really doesn't care who he runs for as long as he becomes president. Meanwhile, Stephen Watts Kearney is sent to California. We know from previous episodes that John C. Fremont is already there. Kearney sets up treaties with various native peoples on the way to California, which would present a problem. It was all well and good when the United States was at war with Mexico, but soon after the Americans would say, hey, we are no longer at war with the people, which did not make sense to tribes like the Navajo or Apache. Those new Mexicans, it should be said now, were traditional enemies of the Navajo and the Apache. So this concept that they're now Americans, they're now the American people, uh, didn't necessarily translate very well with them. In August of 1846, Kearney captures Santa Fe without a fight. He will then move on to California. This is where he runs into Kit Carson, who leads Kearney's army on to the coast. It would not be an easy time. Kearney would fight against Mexican insurgents in brutal and violent fights. While Scott saps the strength of Taylor, Santa Ana will move north with 20,000 men. 
it was deemed impossible for the Mexican army to move across the desert to attack Taylor, who had only 5,000 men, reinforced by those under John Wool, who we will find a familiar name. To the surprise of the Americans, the Mexican army soon appeared, and it was apparent there would have to be a battle. Arkansas volunteers committed atrocities against Mexican civilians around this time, recorded by the newspapers. This is an important takeaway for our officers in the Civil War, because there would be a distrust of the media, and I think a realization that the public opinion needed to be more positive. Faced with superior numbers, the Mexican general would demand the surrender of Taylor. Old Rough and Ready would tell Santa Ana to go to hell, par the course. So would begin the Battle of Buena Vista. American troops were set up in a V formation and withstand the Mexican assaults. At one point, Taylor reportedly tells Braxton Bragg, double shot your guns and give them hell, Bragg, further cementing him as a key figure in the eyes of the American public. Facing supply issues, the Mexican army would withdraw. In an effort to appease his army, Santa Ana would be mentioning the fact that there was a rebellion further south. But I've seen that this was a false alarm, and perhaps even known to be a false alarm by the commanding general. Many would actually desert on their track south in defeat. Meanwhile, Veracruz would be taken via a bombardment of the U.S. Navy, as well as a siege by land forces under Winfield Scott. You will notice that most of the naval personnel we have been talking about would have gained experience during this engagement. It was also during this action where there is a lot of negative publicity given the civilian casualties inflicted, especially amongst internationals. Veracruz was a very international city. It was a trade port, so there were a lot of different nationalities there, and a general bombardment of the city obviously would inflict some sort of civilian casualties. Soon after, Scott will move out from Veracruz to a place called Cerro Gordo. Fortifications were made there by Santa Ana, with 12,000 men defending them. Most of the rocky terrain was covered, but there was a hill, very rocky hill, that Santa Ana did not place troops on. Scott would call for his engineers to perform a reconnaissance of this terrain. Of these men was one Captain Robert E. Lee. At 40, he was a little old for that rank, but he would prove himself by leading American troops to the top of the undefended hill. April 18, 1847, the battle begins. American infantry would assault and take the Mexican works. After the battle, Santa Ana would lament that if they retreated to hell, Scott would follow them there. After Cerro Gordo, General Scott would await reinforcements. Eventually, he would move out when negotiations fail yet again and march on Mexico City. He would move his men around the city instead of taking the most direct route. At the Battle of Contreras, Robert E. Lee would guide troops through rocky terrain yet again. The next day, the Americans would attack Churubusco, which 
was defended by the San Patricios. Members of this unit would actually tear down Mexican white flags because they knew full well that surrender would mean potential execution. Eventually, they were forced to surrender due to lack of ammunition. Of those captured, those who deserted after war was declared were executed as the castle of Chapultepec fell shortly thereafter. Speaking of that castle, the castle of Chapultepec was the last fortification standing in the way of the U.S. Army. This position was defended by Mexican troops and cadets. Infantry would advance under the cover of artillery fire. They would climb up to the castle, and the fortress was taken by assault, with much hand-to-hand fighting. There were actually six cadets who refused to surrender, instead fighting to the death. Those six cadets are honored today in Mexico as national heroes. With the fall of this position, Santa Ana would withdraw from the capital. The Battle of Molina del Rey afterwards would assault a cannon foundry with heavy casualties. After taking the foundry, this would seal the fate of Mexico City, which would be forced to surrender after heavy fighting. Santa Ana would withdraw to Guadalupe Hidalgo. Winfield Scott would sleep in Mexico City under a guard of U.S. Marines, hence the Halls of Montezuma line from the Marines' hymn. At this point, Nicholas Trist would arrive and make a big impact. This is probably not a name you have heard of. Trist was a disciple of Andrew Jackson and sent by Polk to negotiate the end of hostilities. Polk actually miscalculated the convictions of Trist, who was not seeking political fame. He would combine with Scott in efforts to end the war in a peaceful manner. In fact, Scott would place emphasis on keeping the civil order. Polk would want to press the Mexicans for even more territory, but Trist would actually defy the president and settle for just the purchase of California and the establishment of the border at the Rio Grande. The president was obviously not too happy with Trist, who was denied work for the government for some time. By this point, though, the public opinion was sour on the war, so conclusion was paramount. Taylor would ride his wave of popularity into the White House, dying shortly into his first term. We can actually go ahead and stop there for now. I want to get into the actual impact and experience of future Civil War generals, as well as some takeaways from the conflict in a later episode, so keep listening for that. We got to take a good look at continuing action in Missouri in the Union and the retaking of Springfield, as well as this rundown of the Mexican-American War, which was not really detailed, but you know, still a little bit more detailed than the very high-level view that we saw in the setup episodes. Next week, we have two good events. The first will wet the blade of Ulysses Grant during the war. The second will continue the dominance of the U.S. Navy and the increasing effectiveness of the blockade. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, 
as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcomed. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.